Welcome to the Geoeconomics Podcast. I'm your host, Alexa Bomazovich, and today I'm speaking with Tom W. Bell. Tom is a lecturer at the Fowler School of Law at Chapman University, and he's one of the foremost legal scholars on the SEZ space, as well as an author and consultant in the space. Uh, more on that during the episode. The conversation we had goes into the experience of our learning about SEZs, as well as the more uh, obscure lore about the space. So I think it'll be equally interesting to the veterans of the space, as it will to the uh, freshest faces among us. So without further ado, here's Tom. And here I am with Tom W. Bell. Tom, how are you doing today? Good, Alexa. How are you? Doing quite well. Well, uh, Tom, I've known you since uh, I've known you since 2017, and uh, since then, uh, my personal opinion of special economic zones and sort of the space that we find ourselves in has uh, has changed significantly, sort of from the more ideological uh, side of things to very concrete and business oriented. When did you first learn about this special economic zone? thing and like what's your entire history of interacting with this idea yeah but to tell you and by the way i agree uh with the change of focus that you have it it made sense for people to have a big picture more theoretical view before these cities actually started being built but now they're being built and uh we're moving things around and uh yeah we have to get into the nuts and bolts i myself got started in 2014 when i heard about the honduran then called red a program red program and so that's how i got started i've worked with three teams in honduras and finally the last team uh with the prospera team saw the launch the launch of the first Honduran Zede. So that went from 2014 to, uh, well, I guess till today, I still talk with them. Um, and the, since I got started, I've worked in countries like uh, the Republic of Georgia, French Polynesia, Panama. I've traveled quite a bit to these interesting places doing interesting projects. I've worked on a variety of, of special jurisdiction projects now. Lately, my career has turned towards more digital commerce. There are some interesting uh, developing ideas with regard to, we might call them digital special economic zones. So I began on the dirt in Honduras, and that has now, they, you know, they poured concrete, they're building buildings in, in Prospera. And uh, now I'm moving over and most recently to kind of digital projects. That's that's quite poetic, moving from sort of the uh, the dirt to the cloud, as it were. Um, I've uh, I've got a meme actually that I created for a special economic zones uh, group chat that we have. It's a three by three grid outlining what people define as uh, as SEZs, and sort of one of the axes is the physical one, which is does it have to be physically delineated thing, or can it just be anything with legal autonomy? And then on the other one is the regulatory one, which is does it have to have full regulatory autonomy? or can I have just some minor tweaks? And uh, the absolutely radical version of that, which is it has zero territorial associations and it can just be completely independent, is something called the Uzbek blockchain valley, which is a really weird and interesting primarily crypto and blockchain type project. And it's not anywhere particular in the country. I was wondering if you could point me to some of the more interesting uh, digital programs and uh, digital focused physical SEZs that uh, that you find interesting and why is it that you do? Sure, okay. Let's talk about a few other SEZs, you might call them zones. They're tempting to be zones in the upper right-hand corner of your 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 chart as I'm picturing it. So these would be the most disembodied, most decentralized jurisdictions that have the most uh, autonomy. Is that right, Alexa? That would be up in the upper right-hand corner? Uh, correct, yes. We can put the uh, meme up on the screen and everybody will be able to see what it is. Okay, I don't see it myself, but I, I know you got a, a picture. It's easy to picture. So, okay. Well, one, of course, is uh, Balaji Srivasan's 1729 project. Uh, you might have heard of him. He's now 
CFO, I think, of Coinbase. You don't get to that position without a lot of successes in your resume. He's done a lot of interesting things and he's just a great thinker. He's trying to create a, I guess you can call it decentralized uh, republic of sorts. Uh, 1729, it's a mathematically significant number, which you can find out about if you track them down. And he's got a, what I like about a lot of, I like a lot of things about his work, but what I like about the 1729 project is he has mapped out a trajectory, which I think is the most reasonable step from a uh, set of steps from here to where he wants to go. There's a lot of people that talk big and they can't deliver, frankly. So I'll talk about some of those others who talk big that don't seem to be thinking about delivering. You will probably provide, Alexa, your listeners and readers of your website, links to some of my recent papers. One of them is the Distributed Governance Index. And what it does is it assesses the governance of a number of distributed protocol communities. And, and yes, I do think of Bitcoin as a distributed protocol community. It's definitely a distributed protocol. And I think there's a community of sorts. They do have a government of sorts. And there's, there's there are other distributed protocol communities, actually a lot of them. And I look at several of them, 10 of them, in fact, in this um, really, it's, I dare say, a kind of groundbreaking uh, analysis. I don't know anyone else who's done it, certainly not done it the way I've done it. I try to make it easy for my readers. I know they want a quick picture, a, a quick look at something that's really complicated. So there are in that review a couple of distributed protocol communities that really have pretenses of having a government and they basically flop. They basically fail. I'm going to put EOS at the top of the uh, list for there's a lot of these communities. There's a lot, lot, lot I don't even look at because they're kind of piffling. So I picked the big communities in terms of capitalization. So of course, Bitcoin is on there. When I did it, EOS was on there. And then there's a few that are just kind of interesting. And so EOS makes claims to having a constitution and made claims about having online dispute adjudication. They just failed to deliver for reasons you can read about in that paper. I admire the sentiment. They're getting that way. They're heading in the right direction. They need to talk to some lawyers. <laughs> I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> um, there's some other protocols that come out better, but none really are up to snuff in my eyes. I'll give you one, maybe one more. I can't say much about this, but it is a project I'm working on. Um, it is a, an online jurisdiction in the works, which we hope to unveil, oh, I don't know, I'll say next year. I mean, this year, the coming year, uh, maybe, which is basically uh, using the advantages afforded under U.S. law to Native American nations. They have a special jurisdictional stance in U.S. law. And if you set it up right and you have the right tribe and you are very careful about what you do, it's a great stance to have for launching a zone that people can access from their desks in Cincinnati and Seattle and Miami while getting access immediately over the internet to an online jurisdiction where they can transact in various crypto economic areas. So that's in the works. I think it's exciting. We're going to do it better, <laughs> I dare say, than anyone else. <laughs> that is a very exciting project. And it's uh, it's reminded me of a development in the SEC space that happened uh, just as COVID was sort of kicking off in, uh, in March and April of last year. So for example, the Dubai International Financial City was one of the SECs in Dubai that allowed people who were uh, expats to gain work in uh, in Dubai. And that was sort of the situation before COVID. But during COVID, when uh, restrictions were in place and people couldn't travel in, what they did was they allowed uh, those expats who used to work inside of the zone, and all of these people would uh, move back to their home countries. Many of them were in uh, Malaysia or Pakistan or uh, other places in Asia. And uh, what the zone would allow for is for them to work remotely. Let's say this is a business process outsourcing or uh, something 
something of that type uh, would allow them to work remotely in that way and still gain all of the advantages that they as physical individuals working for companies would get from uh, from activity within the zone, meaning meaning no income tax, meaning uh, several of these legal advantages. And what I'm seeing, and for th- this sort of le- leads back into what you were talking about, this, uh, this trend towards the ephemeralization of law into the digital realm, meaning that uh, you're able to gain these regulatory advantages that are present in one place, even though that you're in another. And, uh, you know, b- way back in the day, that would mean uh, offshore banking or, uh, or whatever. But now I think that it's evolving into something much more meaningful, which is that you're able to create this race to the top scenario where each jurisdiction now needs to uh, innovate and value add in such a way that it can capture this, you know, globalized village, essentially, of uh, internet users, which is now many, many billions in the in the numbers. But uh, I was wondering what you think about this uh, trend towards digital ephemeralization of, uh, of law and legal access. Your observations are very astute. I see the same thing going on. And we might add to the short list you and I are developing, uh, of course, Estonia's e-citizenship program. And um, that has been duplicated. Can I say that? It's been it's been taken as a model for Prospera. Again, that first Honduran ZA. There, there are others, by the way. There's at least one other Honduran ZA which is launched, but it, it remains first, Prospera. And they're offering now an e-citizenship program. And they are explicitly saying we are looking uh, you know, over our shoulders. We're looking ahead at some of our competitors, like Estonia, and we want to beat them. And that's great. We have not just governments now, but I mean, jurisdictions of all sorts competing in what you've observed is a very fluid market. I think we can foresee that exit costs and entry costs are going to be pretty low. I'm very excited about it. You know, though, I don't want us, Alexa, to get so far removed from the real world. We forget our friends in logistics who right now are dealing probably with, you know, rubber literally on the road. And I really don't have, you might, because you're a foreign fellow. I don't have some... uh, I don't think I have some super insightful thoughts about how these two worlds could integrate, but I have to think, of course, everyone knows about blockchain management of um, all the, the the records that go with shipping and logistics trains and things like that. So, okay, that'll help. But um, it's interesting to think about what someone who, uh, you know, thinks about the loading docks every day in a foreign trade zone, what that person will find in these, uh, these sort of e-jurisdictions. Oh, for sure. I think that uh, the physical aspect of things is uh, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, the advantages posed by e-Estonia and by uh, the Zeddies that are adopting this sort of digital ephemeralization road is, I think, a completely different uh, set of governance service consumers, as it were, compared to, say, the uh, the logistics and trading uh, businesses and individuals that are using stuff like uh, foreign trade zones, free trade zones, export processing zones, etc. Now, blockchain registry of supply chains is something that's going to significantly improve the efficiency of these physical uh, developments. But uh, what I think you might add the most value to, Tom, is the evolution of where the where the legal evolution of these uh, physical spaces is going. So historically, export processing zones and similar uh, zones of this type were uh, primarily places where you would gain advantages like not paying taxes, not paying tariffs, uh, loosened labor laws, stuff like that. And many of these lend themselves to sort of the race to the bottom scenario where like, if you regulate the least, uh, you're going to be able to capture a lot of value. Now, obviously, that's counterbalanced by uh, by geoeconomics. Like if you're uh, in the middle of the jungle somewhere, and there's no market access that you have and no infrastructure access, then you 
can have all the no regulations that you want, it doesn't matter. But now, considering sort of the other angle of things, which is that uh, the race to the top being created by these ephemeralized digital zones may start to bleed over into the physical ones as well. So, you know, putting aside all of the race to the bottom stuff, like lower tax rates and less regulations and stuff like that, what are some of the things from a doing business perspective on your, uh, from your perspective that physical zones can start implementing to get more competitive? Because uh, that's sort of uh, my bread and butter as, a, as an SEZ consultant. And it's really difficult to think of uh, good solutions that need to be added uh, and, you know, regulatory approaches that need to be added to physical zones to make them more competitive. So I was wondering what you think about that. Let's talk about uh, maybe three things quickly. These are sort of like software add-ons to physical zones, the hardware physical zones that can add value. And uh, if you think about that that obvious metaphor with computers, you can see, wow, there's a lot of value in getting the software right. I'm sure that's what most of the value in our computers is, is from, uh, a lot of it anyhow. Okay. So well, uh, maybe let me pick out three ways that software can improve things. Let's start with just a financial innovation. You know, finance is tied into other uh, rules, and there's a model from finance that is exemplified in what really is a special kind of zone, and that is a ship. Every vessel on the high seas flies the flag of a terrestrial sovereign, and it operates under the law of that flagging sovereign. And these vessels, when they pay for the right to fly a flag, which is very much like paying for the right to set up your factory and say Shenzhen, right? You've got to pay to get access to the dirt. So you pay a you pay a flagging registry like the Bahamas Maritime Authority to get a flag. They don't look into your onboard finances. They measure the size of your ship. They use a measure called gross tonnage, which is basically a size uh, capacity measure. And there's some other things they look at, like, you know, what kind of vessel is it? What, are, what kind of basic things will it do? Is it going to be fishing or shipping goods or people? And they assess you a fee. They do not get into your books. Maybe, maybe you have a corporation on board the vessel and it has a taxing authority somewhere else and they get into your books. But the shipping authority treats the ship financially like a black box. And that is a beautiful, beautiful model. I think you'll find with a lot of business people, they'll say, look, you know, I don't like taxes, but I'm willing to pay a fair amount for sure to get the services, the support, the infrastructure I need. But what I can't stand is having these guys crawling into my books, creating uncertainty, slowing me down. I just want to make money. I just want to make money and know what I got to pay. Just give me the bill and I'm out of here. And that's what they do in shipping. That's kind of what Prospera does. They've taken a huge step in that direction. There's a lot of good things to say about the model that the ZA system is bringing to Honduras. A lot of good things and a few, you know, things to worry about. A lot of good things. One of the best things about it is they have very few and clear rules. They also, you know, they're going to shake off a lot of the corruption that can plague administration of Honduran law elsewhere, but they're going to have simple rules. So I think there's step one, or I think one, Alexa, I think we're going to see competition in finance or rather, uh, I can't say revenue or taxing models. They're going to make zones more attractive to business people who just want to make money in a fair way. They do not want to spend a lot of time filling out forms, dealing with red tapes. There's item one. Item two, um, we're seeing a lot of common law zones now. I just wrote a paper about this. I'm sure you're going to provide it to your uh, fans about common law zones. There's four of them now in the United States. There's a number of things to be interested about uh, with regard to these common law zones. Your audience who's, who know anything about the law will know, oh, yeah, it's a law of like England and, and America and Australia and New Zealand. Yes. Yes. Very trusted and tested legal systems use the common law system. And so do a growing number of leading zones. Dubai's International Financial Center, Abu Dhabi Global Market, Kastana's International Financial Center, and the ZA system all use common law. That should be exciting to people who are in commerce generally. 
common law, you can get attorneys the world over who know the basics. It's a kind of a pain when you go to a country and great, they give you their own special code, but it's their own special code. You got to hire a local guy to get it figured out. It's not good for international business. They prefer to be able to use their, you know, their London attorneys or their Houston attorneys. And that's what this new development is going to allow. So that's item two, Alexa. Uh, we can get software add-on with common law zones. Item three is the most speculative. I'm saving this one for the last because it's really what I'm excited about. I've worked on several zone projects. Now, what I do is I build legal systems for these private jurisdictions. That's basically what I do. And I've developed ULEX, which is an open source legal system, or rather it's really more like a kernel of a legal system from all common law sources, all private common law sources, all public open access stuff. Because I think there will be an advantage someday to having different jurisdictions running the same basic code. I don't think it'll be only ULEX, but something like ULEX could be at its kernel. And that will help people in business. Because now when you ship from, say, Abu Dhabi to Tokyo, if you can have a zone running something like one of these common law legal systems at either end, it greatly simplifies the transaction, makes it easier for you to worry about getting, you know, uh, a tanker fuel in your vessel and getting everything loaded and all the other stuff that goes into shipping. You don't have as many lawyers getting in the way. So there's three things, Alexa, three ways I'm, I'm looking forward to having the law and regulatory financial systems improve, the software side improve, so that people on the ground dealing with the hardware can can, can get to work. The latter of these three, Ulex, that you just mentioned, uh, makes me sort of think about you know, my mind being inspired by the uh, by the COVID pandemic makes me think about this as sort of a human body where uh, the standardized units of trade, and bear with me on this analogy, the standardized units of trade that are moving throughout the world are, let's say, shipping containers, like 20-foot 20 uh, equivalent units. And uh, the immune system for each system that, uh, that these blood cells, as it were, go into would be sort of the legal system. And having everybody operating on the same immune system, or in this case, the same legal system, makes uh, makes trade and interaction between everybody easier. So if everybody's either had COVID or if everybody's, you know, vaccinated, then everybody can be in the same physical space. And similarly, if uh, everybody's sort of running the same uh, legal operating system in a similar way, uh, that makes uh, trade between those who operate it significantly less risky and uh, and extremely streamlined. Am I sort of thinking in the right direction here? Beautiful analogy. Perfect. We might add you know, pallets are standardized, containerized shipping, rail gauges tend to be uh, uniform. And, and where rail gauges are not uniform, it's a big deal. Like at the, the border between uh, China and the former Soviet Union, you know, they got all these problems with rail gauge. Yeah. And the idea is, you know, everybody talks about the law. And unfortunately, for good reason, they think about politicians who want to run things. And that's really not what it should be about. It should be about providing a few basic rules that really that don't get used a lot. It's like the plumbing. You've got to call a plumber when something goes wrong. You want it well-designed at the start so it does everything right, and then you can more or less forget about it. And that's what we should aspire for these um, for these zones across the world. So yeah, I'm looking forward to a network of zones running on something like the same legal system and just, just doing it so much better. A single computer sitting alone, pretty cool. You can do a lot with it. Computers, wow. Interface over networks, that's where the magic happens. That's where the money is going to get made, I think. Yeah. So that's an interesting, uh, an interesting thought. That's where the money's going to get made. Uh, there's a there's a big problem with uh, with liquidity and sort of money making in the uh, in the SEC space when you're allowing you know just trade to pass through and uh, and businesses to function inside of the SEC, sort of there's there's revenue lost by not collecting taxes and uh, not levying tariffs and stuff like that. I was wondering uh, what are some of the revenue models that you see might be uh, 
might be evolving as a result of this. One of the things that, uh, that I'm considering is that once CBDCs, uh, central bank digital currencies, become a thing, then what you can have programmed into the into the currency is that, you know, 10% of every transaction just goes back into the central bank, which is auditable, and you can see where that money goes. And that's sort of a way that uh, taxes will be collected in the future through CBDCs. And then SEZs, assuming uh, assuming that uh, CBDCs become a thing, will get some of their revenue that way. But then I'm thinking, well, hold on, what's the regulatory streamlining that zones will be providing at that point? So with that in mind, I'm wondering what you think about uh, revenue models for lawyers, for uh, the legal industry in general, in this new ephemeralized and somewhat standardized, if I can say, world that's uh, that's incoming over the next 10 or 15 years. I'm sure central bankers would uh, like a lot of things about being able to manipulate that the currency with that level of granularity and to be able to tax automatically. I'm sure they'd like that a lot. That's not so clear to me. That's what the market wants. It's not so clear that's even going to be something that'll scale up. In my experience, once you get the government involved in a network, it kind of slows down things considerably. And it's likely that these central bank digital currencies will have to compete with non-central bank digital currencies, which don't have all the red tape attached. So, so anyhow, you asked about, so I'm just going to say, yeah, I'm not so sure that's going to work. And what would happen in its stead? What are some other revenue models? Well, here I am going to get theoretical. I know a lot of your listeners are kind of hard-nosed, the business people interested in the future, sure, but making it work. Okay, but here's a little bit of theory. It's pretty clear most tax people from across the spectrum, if they're theoreticians, they'll tell you that land value taxes or ground rents are the most efficient way to tax uh, a community that's within a jurisdiction. So all the, the externalities that are generated by a working uh, community. And of course, you know, a port or a, a, a trade facility is a community of sorts. And so that means not VAT taxes, not value-added taxes, not income taxes. It means basically, again, to go back to this uh, exemplar of it, the way that vessels pay for their flags, that should be the revenue model, ideally, that these zones use. And basically, the idea is not many zones get do this, some get close to it, is you walk in and you say, I want that plot of land, I'll build on it myself, I'm paying you probably ongoing rent, zone operator, for that land. You can transact it, you can structure it, of course, like a sale. This is the way a lot of so-called sales of land happen in uh, China. They're actually long-term leases, but the, the market for these long-term leases is sufficient, sufficiently standardized and liquid that you can treat it like a, a, a real property market where you're purchasing land in peace simple. Point is, you make a payment or series of payments to use the land, and that's it. That is the ideal. What we see in practice, though, uh, Alexa, is that... Often, something like that, a land value tax or one-time purchase for land use rights, if we're talking about China. I keep returning to China. It's a recent uh, subject of study of mine. We should talk more about it later, Alexa, under a separate heading. It's a, it's a very interesting thing happening there on a scale that just boggles the mind. What they do there in China, in addition to that, uh, uh, basically, uh, a real estate transaction is a tack on taxes. And that, by the way, is common. Now, Prospera is going to do basically the same thing. They are doing the same thing. They are mandated to have taxes, and they pay a portion of those taxes to the Honduran government, which is another thing to bring in here, Alexa, where you're asking, what about finance models? Well, I think that <laughs> I think it's super smart what they've done in the Zeti program, because they've structured it so that the government, which will change, uh, is going to remain happy with the special zone. It's getting recurring payments, and it has skin in the game in a way. The better that zone does, the more money Honduras gets for basically not 
much for letting someone else run part of its territory within broad limits. It's not incurring a lot of expenses to provide any services to that zone. And hopefully it's going to be kicking back a lot of money in Honduras. So there are some things about finance. Ideally, everything would be on a ground rents or land value tax model. Usually there's other sources of revenue, something like income tax, value added tax, usually not property tax in my experience, but other taxes and fees, fees also, of course. Sometimes the zones own the infrastructure and it's only fair. You know, they charge for use support facilities and things like that. I'll just stop there. There's a couple, oh, and we're going to see, I hope, I hope we're going to see zones paying basically fees of a sort of tax of a sort back to their host jurisdictions. It hasn't happened enough, actually. Too many situations where basically the zone is parasitic on the local government. Oh yeah, that's great when you kick it into gear, but it's not sustainable. You end up with uh, the local sovereign being unhappy and that's just never good for the zone or the local sovereign. So, I mean, speaking of, uh, of China and unsatisfied sovereigns, you've sort of made me think about uh, about history now and sort of the background from which SEZs and projects of that type actually originate. I was wondering, as a legal scholar and uh, somebody who's been in this space for uh, for quite a long time, what are some interesting stories uh, about you know historical versions of SEZs or uh, any particular case studies that you think might be interesting? So I'm always uh, I'm always talking to people about SEZs, and uh, very often uh, they don't know what they are, and it's uh, it's really troubling to explain that to them. I was wondering if there's a uh, if there's a shorthand story, particularly from history, that might be interesting to go into right now, that would be a useful a useful 101 as to what an SEZ is, and then we can go into some of the more uh, interesting and wacky legal situations and precedents that uh, SEZs have posed throughout the world. Wow, because you're looking for just sort of a good example of an SEZ that uh, illustrates what they're about, something like that. Well, you know, right. I... I I keep wanting to go back to Hong Kong, but I think I got to stop using Hong Kong because its status is no longer what it was. So I'll leave that unhappy statement there. Well, uh, let me find another one. Um, I could take foreign trade zones in the United States. I'll say a little bit about that because a lot of Americans don't even know about these. I got to admit, I was ignorant about them until I wrote my book. And by the way, if you want to get the stories, get my book. My book is Your Next Government. From the nation state to stateless nations, there's now an updated audiobook version available. And um, yeah, I talk a lot about different types of SEZs. A good one to point to as an example of how they can work would be uh, Dubai's International Financial Center. It's been a huge success. It's it's more of a kind of a, a business services oriented zone. It doesn't have a lot of residents. It's not a full blown city, but nonetheless, it's been a huge success. And what they did was they discovered uh, well, there's a couple of things. The, the very clever Emir of Dubai noticed during one of the many oil crises that have hit over the the ages that his city was becoming used as an international hub for flights. This happened when Iran got shut down. Flights couldn't stop. And, and so you've got a direct flight uh, connecting. Uh, Dubai to London bankers who were stopping there a lot. And he just thought there's some value that we can add here. And indeed they did. They wanted to host more financial transactions in a way that helped the London bankers interface with a basically a Sharia law economy. Uh, because under Sharia law, there's, this is an oversimplification, but let's just say it's difficult, very difficult, awkward to charge interest on loans. And of course, London bankers have a hard time living with that restriction. So um, the Dubai International Financial Center served as a kind of an intermediary place, is how I view it, to allow these two communities to, you know, work together and make a ton of money. And they have done very well, very well. Thank you. I'll just pause there. That's an example, Alex. I want to make sure I'm giving you what you want. I mean, that's not a hugely, there's not a lot of residents in that. There are examples we could talk about which are bigger and more 
city size, but that is a successful, if if narrow, zone. Oh, for sure. That gives us a good idea of, uh, of what SEZs are. And it's always uh, important to observe that, you know, there's a physical person, in this case, the emir, who sort of recognizes this opportunity for uh, for adding value somewhere. Very often, it's uh, it's an unfortunate reality of the SEZ world that uh, uh, SEZs seized upon as an opportunity to create regulatory easements for uh, politically connected people or uh, SEZs are pursued as political projects so that politicians have something to cut a ribbon on. And uh, it's uh, it's quite annoying to uh, to see how often that happens. However, uh, as you just mentioned with DIFC, it's uh, one of the most uh, soberly and advisedly created zones in the world and obviously very, uh, very expertly managed. But uh, if you had more ideas about uh, not necessarily soberly and, uh, and <laughs> sanely managed zones, but some of the more uh, interesting and uh, unorthodox. I'd like to uh, go into those as well, Tom. Well, I'll give you a few fun ones. Uh, and by the way, I, I see you and I are doing here what, what people in our community tend to do a lot because it's fun. There's so many different kinds of zones. It's kind of fun to go around like a butterfly collector with a net on your shoulder. So, okay, I'll tell you some <laughs> funny ones I've caught, interesting ones I've caught. First of all, I want to point out one again. This is for our, uh, listeners in the United States. They should realize that the United States was completely founded as a series of private special zones. That's really what they were about. These were private companies with charters. Talk about charter cities. I mean, these were charter kind of, they weren't actually colonies at first. They became colonies later when, as happened to most of these zones, like the Jamestown Company, like the New England Company, uh, the Virginia Company, they actually, most, most of them flopped financially and then they became colonies. But the point is they got started with the king saying, okay, you know, you can have some special autonomy, some special rules. You get to do a lot of things on your own because you're going to be on your own. I authorize you to go off to the new world and good luck making money and dealing with the locals. And um, anyhow, great examples from history. So really, hey, there's nothing more American than special jurisdictions. <laughs> um, here's a funner example that people won't have heard about. And it's CERN, which is the European nuclear, it's a French, that's a French acronym. Basically, it's the European Nuclear Research Commission. That's the big underground particle collider thing, right? Yes, yes, those people. And basically, because they have such a huge capital investment in this underground super collider, which, and because the underground super collider crosses the borders of three countries, it's so big. It's basically put in a special zone. And in this zone, the, the, the treaty among these countries creating uh, the CERN facilities specifies that the, the, the facilities are basically sacrosanct. They are outside of the reach of any of the officials on whose property, on whose territory the, the super collider allegedly looks. You know, you look at a map, it looks like, oh, it's in France, it's in Switzerland. No. Those local officials have to get the permission of certain officials to even walk on that land. And the certain officials are exempt from any income taxes, social security contributions of their member countries. Basically, they it's a lot like the former church. And it really kind of fits. They still got these people in robes doing these kind of incantations. And all the politicians kind of stand back and say, this is some kind of magic. We don't know. <laughs> but we respect it and we're not going to mess with it or bad things will happen or something like that. It's quite it's quite interesting how CERN so much resembles, both legally, uh, yeah, le- how re- legally it resembles some medieval church. So that's a fun one. I'll give you, I'll give you one more, Alexa. This is a favorite one because I'm working on it. Free Society Project. And I'm sure for some of your listeners, this is going to be the most wild thing they hear all day. Um, they might have heard of it. You might have heard, I'm sure you've heard of it, Alexa. It's basically, it was started by some people who did very well in crypto, but who didn't do so well with governments. We, all of us sometimes have that problem, but they had enough money to do something about it. And they said, what we're going to do 
is. But what they said, this isn't quite the right legal formulation, but I'll give you the short of version is we're going to go buy sovereignty from existing, existing country. We're going to find some country that has more territory than they need. There are countries like that. Very thin population really needs some cash on the table now. A lot of countries like that. And we're going to somehow arrange it. We'll hire attorneys to help us with this. That's basically part of my job. Um, you know, we'll arrange it so we can start our own country from scratch and we'll do it right. Now, you've heard me say good things about the Prosper and ZA system and Dubai's International Financial Center and all these you know, great zones. But there's always a sovereign in the background, which for good reason says things like, hey, whoa, whoa, you can't, you know, fly up your own flag. And these guys at Free Society Project said we want to be able to fly our own flag. So we're going to build it from the ground up. As I say, it's a bare metal install. If you design chips, you know, you do like hard pro hardware programming and you design chips. If you can do a bare metal install, so you get to build this from the bottom up. Guy who codes, that's really great. <laughs> you can do things right. You don't have to build on this kind of lumpy, swampy soil of an existing sovereign, which is not always so conducive to the things you and your clients want to do. So there you go. Free Society Project. You know, we're working on it. We're working on it. Uh, good progress. And you can find out a little bit about that one online. I hope someday you'll be able to go there. Sounds like a really interesting project. And, uh, you know, as long as it's ethical, economically feasible and legal, I think uh, I think any project really uh, deserves uh, deserves Godspeed for me in, uh, in succeeding. But I'll be honest, I haven't heard of this one, so uh, I'll be uh, I'll be sure to include it in the uh, in the descriptions for uh, for the listeners. I'm I'm sort of running out of questions. Uh, when when you're usually on uh, on podcasts and like interviews, what's something that you get asked that you really hate being asked? I was trying to avoid those questions, but I was wondering if there is something like that. Something I hate being asked? Is that what you said? Yes. Well, I'm a pretty congenial guy. It's hard to irritate me if you're letting me talk, especially. <laughs> well, I don't know. I I, I do hear this isn't so much people asking me in person but i hear talk in media accounts of zones whenever they happen they don't happen a lot they're going to happen with increasing frequency though just some kind of ridiculous well, the concerns are well placed but they become uh they become shrill accusations i see this especially in honduras there's been many uh i'm sure well-meaning but ignorant commentators who have immediately leaped to the conclusion that somehow a bunch of capitalists are stealing land from locals, uh, especially local indigenous people. And again, their concerns are not uh, uh, completely unfounded. Definitely Honduras and other, I was going to say Latin American, but I can just say countries, other countries all over the world have done terrible things to indigenous people, especially and citizens of all types, always in the name of progress, or usually sometimes in the name of oppression, usually in the name of progress, and often in the name of a zone. There's been some terrible uh, cases of zone uh, zones being built on appropriated land. This is especially common, as I understand it, in India um, and in China also. Although they don't have as many occasions to voice their discontent, uh, their discontent with the regime's treatment of them. There have been many uh, rural residents in China who have felt aggrieved at the government's, uh, not always a central government, often a local government, but nonetheless, some government's treatment of what they thought was their land. Uh, so that does happen. Does happen not happening in Prospera, in the ZA system. In fact, if you read the rules for the ZA system, you'll see, wow, they've given this a lot of thought, and they know it can be a problem. And if you study what Prospera has done, they, there's just no credible claim that they could, even could have taken money from, or taken property from anybody. There's nothing in there. Um, in their land. So that's the thing people worry about over much, I think, over much. And indeed, oh. more generally, Alexa, the thing that I find annoying in this area, 
Scott Alexander did a very nice long piece. If you find it, Alexi, you might want to link to it. Mm -hmm. Scott Alexander, he of uh, what is it, uh, uh, Star Codex, he uh, wrote a very nice analysis of the ZA system. And as he observed, you're talking about like a 53-acre development. It's like the size of a golf course. People get so excited about it without ever noting, wow, this could be a great alternative to what would otherwise be the default legal system. And frankly, Honduras, it's not awesome. So it's as if, you know, the government everybody compares its own to is the best, quick, cleanest, squeakiest, you know, most efficient government that ever existed. And all they can imagine for the zone that wants to implement some more commercially friendly laws is that it's it's going to be packed with rapacious capitalists who just can't wait to eat the local babies or something crazy. So let's be realistic about this when we assess these projects. Zones aren't perfect. Of course not. They're run by humans. But guess what? Neither are governments. And that's why it's so important, regardless of what you think about any particular zone, to let zones happen so we can make these jurisdictions compete. I don't think zones are necessarily better. I do think competition is better. So I guess what I'd say is not so much I hate these questions, but it annoys me when people approach this issue with the wrong frame the wrong framework. They're trying to pick winners. And instead, we should be asking, what system are we going to end up with? Not who, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, what's the good zone, what's the bad zone. My approach to that is, I don't really know. No one knows. This is the most complicated thing you can imagine. A bunch of humans interacting in large networks where there's a lot of value at stake and complicated rules. Good grief. Very hard to predict what's going to happen. Let's just set it up so they don't kill themselves as they compete, right? Let's have peaceable competition between jurisdictions and great stuff will come out of that. So I'll say that. Let's have let's have conversations about special jurisdictions that recognize the virtues, sure, but mostly recognize we got to let this competition happen so we can all of us figure out what's going to make our world a better place. Absolutely. Land expropriation, as you mentioned, is uh, probably one of the most uh, pernicious and universally present problems in the SEC space. And uh, just fortunately enough, uh, we have some uh, we have some research going on. Hopefully, we'll be able to uh, to publish it uh, about various uh, land expropriation situations that happened in SECs all over the world. As you mentioned, there's India. A lot of it is in Southeast Asia. Uh, a lot of Central America in there as well. So we're we're uh, we're digging quite deep to uh, to explore that and one of the most common things that i notice is that the uh, that the laws and the sort of normative aspect of things is actually quite well handled they have laws that outline uh, some of the best practices like uh, population relocation all of that stuff but sort of hearkening back to the start of the conversation and the uh, and the logistics aspect of things where the rubber meets the road where the law hits uh, hits execution many many times the institution that are supposed to uh, execute on these uh, best practices don't have the necessary capacity to do so, and then really bad stuff happens. I don't want to name any names, but there's been a lot of situations where that's happened, and uh, we'll hopefully be uh, publishing some research about that. I though, as you look at that, maybe you'll have some prospective solutions as well. And I agree with your analysis totally. I don't know everything that your interesting-sounding research hasn't covered. I look forward to seeing that. Don't doubt there's been many abuses of property rights in the building of zones. I'm not happy about that. What are we going to do about it? Here's a solution. I have advocated, which I've yet to see implemented, but I'd love to see implemented someday, provide a double guarantee of property rights. And this is not just to do the right thing, although that should be enough, but it's also that people who buy into the zone or take out long-term leases or whatever, invest in the zone, feel sheltered from political fallout from stealing land. You know, I if I'm an investor, I don't want to go invest in some shiny new zone if it's going to turn out that pretty soon there's going to be people parading with signs on poles in front of my headquarters about how I stole some land. 
So how do you reassure that investor resident, uh, that person who's going to be involved? Double guarantee. Here's what I'd like to see. You say, of course, of course, you check your boxes. So the title you get to the property looks clean under the existing sovereign's legal system. Of course, that. And as you've noted, as you've noted, it could have been a judge paid off under the table. So it says you have clear title and you just, frankly, you don't. So I would say, give them a double guarantee. The people who both own the land beforehand and who invest in it later, you say that, of course, the land is going to be cleared under the existing sovereign's processes, but that the title can be challenged under the new legal processes set up by the zone. Not forever. You have to have a statute of limitations. Basically, the idea is, uh, you know, Farmer Jose, Farmer Jose, who got ripped off when they built the zone because the local judge under the local sovereign's courts takes bribes, has a chance in this new legal system to say, hey, you guys say you're going to treat people right. Well, I'm Jose, and I think they stole my land. And give me a shot at, you know, under your allegedly more fair system. Is that a perfect guarantee? No. It's, you know, arguably more than twice as good as what we got now. All right, I'll stop and move on. If you guys want to build that into a system you're designing, I think it'd be the right and profitable thing to do. And I think uh, system is the uh, is the way to think about it because, uh, you know, thinking about in any individual case, whether or not the institutional failure is going to happen, you can't predict that, right? But building a system that results in more uh, in more institutional success than institutional failure, now that is that is the actual value proposition that we're looking for in the uh, in the SEZ and Charter City space, where you want to build a system that uh, more often results in positive things than negative. If people want to uh, hear more from you and uh, and sort of all of these ideas that you've got, what are some uh, what are some good places for people to uh, to read your ideas and hear you speak? Uh, do you have like uh, live streams, social media presence, anything of that type? Yeah, you get it absolutely. Systems, not just rules, but systems. Yeah. Okay. So you asked, um, yeah, how can people check out what I'm doing? I got to say, by design, because by deliberate choice, I'm not on Twitter. I got off of Facebook. I'm. You can find me on LinkedIn. The thing is, look, I got more work than I can handle right now. <laughs> <laughs> I publish papers and reports. So probably if you're really serious, you got something you want to talk about, you'll find me. Um, I'm an advisor to Pronomos uh, Capital, which is a firm that invests in special jurisdiction projects. I'm working on free society projects uh, system. We're building that out now, although it's still under wrap. Um, you can find me, my LLC, people who want, you know, I'm kind of packed for consulting, but people who want to do that can just find my website, Archimediate LLC. That's my LLC through which I do consulting work. I also do work through Chapman, or if you just want to talk about ideas, I'm always happy to talk about ideas. I'm, you know, I'm half academic, half working attorney in this kind of funny uh, little field that I'm in where I build legal systems. There's a few other people that do that, but the rest of the time I'm an academic and I write papers about this stuff and I welcome hearing from people who have good ideas, ideas for papers. If you got something you want to publish, I am the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Special Jurisdictions, which publishes all kinds of papers about uh, special jurisdictions. So your uh, your audience might want to know about that. And you'll find my email. Really, the best way to reach me is email. And uh, be happy to chat with interested people. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on to the show today, Tom. Uh, I think that uh, this is probably one of the most uh, resource-dense episodes that we've had. And uh, the ideas that we've gone through in uh, in record time, I think, are uh, everything from the very basics of SEZs to uh, some of the most cutting-edge ideas in the space. So if you want to leave 
the listener's tongue with uh, with one idea from the conversation that we've had so far, sort of from the historical angle to the cutting edge, what would uh, what would be uh, something to take away from all of this? I'd say check out my book. Check out my book, Your Next Government. There's uh, text versions, a new updated audio version with some stories from my adventures in the field. And, um, and yeah, maybe you'll find some of my papers about digital zones of interest. Those are not in the book. Those are papers. It's exciting stuff happening. I'm glad to, to find a, a community of folks who want to talk about it and make it happen. Awesome. Uh, I'm glad to have had you on the show, Tom. You're welcome back anytime. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. All the resources mentioned will be in the description. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Geo economics pod you can listen to us on audible stitcher Castbox, apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, i want to thank you for your time today and we'll see you on the next one